Thanks, folks, for leading us in those songs of praise. That's a good uh, song to end on. That's going to be point one in your outline that you received on, on the bulletin insert this morning. This morning, we're finishing our three-week series, mini-series, on faith basics. Message one, you'll remember, dealt with Bible input. It's hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating. We identified these five ways to feed on the Word of God, and then we were challenged to take that next step. Not a giant leap for mankind, but just a a small step toward increasing our Bible intake over the next 12 months. And I don't know whether you noticed or not, but this week, the month of January, disappeared. And so we've got only 11 months left, and I don't know, how are you doing? Let me just say that um, if you don't get it perfect in the first month, that's okay. Just hit the reset button. That's what developing a habit is all about. It, just don't give up. Um, just keep working away at it, and eventually that habit will become a routine part of your life. Bible intake. Last week we focused on believer's baptism. In believer's baptism, an individual who by faith is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation is immersed in water as a visible public display of what has already taken place in their lives spiritually. They have been united with Christ in his death his resurrection and his burial and his resurrection. And coming up out of the water is a picture of how they've been raised to new life in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. If you haven't been baptized as a believer... This is a really important initial step of obedience as we begin to walk with God. Please come and talk to me. Or any one of the elders, for that matter. We would count, would be delighted and count it a privilege to sit down and have a discussion with you about believer's baptism. Answer your questions or whatever else might come up. Come. Come and chat with us. This morning, we want to move on and consider a biblical basis for local church membership. And I need to begin with a confession. Local church membership is not explicitly commanded anywhere in Scripture. It's not. I can't take you to chapter and verse that says you must become a member of a local church. But that does not mean that there is not a biblical basis for formally joining a local church. In fact, I would propose this morning, or like to suggest to you, that the New Testament just assumes that people join local churches. Genuine believers, as a result of the gospel being preached, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, 
and even to the remotest part of the earth. And they responded to that message. They joined local churches. And so, beloved, as we identify, study, and ponder these biblical concepts that support local church membership, my hope and prayer is that those of you who are already members of the Rock Community Church, will re we will recommit ourselves to being healthy, engaged, and contributing members of this local church. And for those that are not members here at the Rock, thank you for coming. We value your participation with us. And for you, I am hoping and praying that as a result of this message, you will give local church membership some serious consideration. And if not here at the Rock Community Church, I can't see why not, but, <laughs> but let me just say, if not here, somewhere. Like, I would pray that God would lead you to a local church where you can make that kind of formal, public commitment to a local fellowship of genuine believers. I just believe it is that important to make that kind of commitment. And Chuck Colson, he agrees with me, or I agree with him. In his book on the church titled The Body, he wrote this. Unfortunately, it is not uncommon for Christians to drift from congregation to congregation, usually where their friends lead them, or where the pastor happens to give the most satisfying message. Many have no sense of roots or responsibility, and some never, ever join a local church. Commitment to the church is at an all-time low, particularly among evangelicals who frequently are more concerned with an individual's personal experience or Christian jargon or even political views than with his or her church commitment. The latter would, in fact, be the last thing that most would use as a spiritual yardstick. Yet membership in a confessing body is fundamental, is fundamental to the faithful Christian life. Second only to the Bible, the church is an indispensable gift from God for our sanctification. Beloved, God has designed and desires to use Bible-believing local churches to facilitate spiritual growth in your life and in my life. I believe that with all of my heart. And I've given the better part of 38 years of my life to that end. This December... It will be 38 years since I got my start in vocational ministry as George Bradford's associate pastor at Oxford Baptist Church in Woodstock, Ontario. So Cynthia and I have really 
in 38 years have come full circle, and we're absolutely delighted to be here. Jesus declared his commitment to the church in Matthew chapter 16. I will build my church, my ecclesia, those who have been set apart from the rest of the world, called out ones, and the gates of Hades, in other words, death, will not overpower it. Not my death. George Boyd will come and go, and Jesus will continue to build his church. Not your death. Not Billy Graham's death. Not even the death of those original 12. Not even Jesus' death. In fact, his death and burial and resurrection only serve to launch what some refer to as the hope of the entire world, the church. And the Rock Community Church at 1140 Nellis Street in Woodstock, Ontario, Canada, is a local, visible part of that church, his church, that he is continuing to build. He designed it and desires to use the church in your life and in my life to grow us spiritually. Look around. Why has God added you and me to this local fellowship? To these numbers. I need you. And you need me. So that together. We can become. All that God intends us to become. Both individually. And collectively. And so let's pray. Before we begin looking into his word. On, on establishing a biblical basis for local church membership. Father, in the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica, for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Father, may the words of my mouth be an accurate and trustworthy presentation of your word so that we can, they can be accepted for what they really are, the word of God, which can then continue to work in all of us who believe, bearing fruit, more fruit, and even much fruit by the power of your spirit, and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Establishing a biblical basis for local church membership. It was not a Christian book, but it did leave a lasting impression in the formative years of my Christian life and ministry. One of those impressions is found near the beginning of the book, where the author, he lays out a maturity continuum. A maturity continuum that involves moving from dependence to independence to interdependence. Allow me to read the author's explanation. On the maturity continuum, 
dependence is the paradigm of me or of you. You take care of me. You come through for me. You didn't come through for me. I blame you for the results. It's a paradigm of you. Independence is a paradigm of I, or sorry, dependence. Dependence is a paradigm of you. Independence is a paradigm of I. I can do it. I'm responsible. I'm self-reliant. I get to choose. But then the third step, and those were pretty straightforward, but the one that caught my attention, admittedly, it was new to me at the time that I read this book for the first time. Interdependence is a paradigm of we. We can do it. We can cooperate. We can combine our efforts with the efforts of others to achieve the greatest success. Dependent people need others to get what they want. Independent people, they get what they want through their own effort. Interdependent people combine their own efforts with the efforts of others to achieve the greatest success. Do you hear the implications of that maturity continuum for the church? The church, the ecclesia, local assemblies of called out ones, are designed to move us along that maturity continuum. A healthy, biblical, local church is designed to help us to grow together, move us along the maturity continuum from dependence to independence to interdependence. Listen to this description taken from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature children. Clearly, God intends his church to be a spiritual incubator leading us, growing us, to spiritual maturity. Unfortunately, the author didn't end there of that book. He continues. Listen to his words. Nevertheless, in the current social paradigm, it enthrones independence. It is the avowed goal of many individuals and social movements. Most of the self-improvement material puts independence on the pedestal, as though communication, teamwork, and cooperation were lesser values. But much of our current emphasis on in- independence is a reaction to dependence, to having others control us, define us, use and manipulate us. Little, the little understood concept of interdependence appears to many to smack of dependence, and therefore, we find people 
often for selfish reasons, leaving their marriages, abandoning their children, and forsaking all kinds of social responsibilities. And I would add to his words, dismissing local church membership as unnecessary and irrelevant, all in the name of independence. We want to stand alone, be the captain of our own ship. Now, why did I share all of this? Because I want us to understand that interdependence and therefore local church membership is countercultural. It's not something that will be intuitive to any one of us. We live at a time and in a culture where this kind of public commitment is neither popular nor encouraged. But listen to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. In spite of the cultural pressures and influences, God's word is giving believers a gentle push in the right direction. And that's where, what we're looking for this morning. A gentle push in the right direction when it comes to local church membership. So let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Here we discover the first of five biblical concepts that support or assume local church membership. Similar to last week, this is not going to be a typical sermon. It's, um, well, Dr. Walter Kaiser, a renowned Bible teacher and Old Testament scholar, former president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, he often joked, I believe every preacher should give a topical sermon once a year and then immediately repent. <laughs> this is my final message in this three-part series. And the plan is to begin making our way through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes in the days and months ahead. So we can look forward to that. But biblical concept number one is the spiritual or invisible universal church. And we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Remember, Ephesians chapter 2 is all about regeneration. Look at verse 1. And you were, that's past tense, dead in your trespasses and sins. That's the bad news, folks. Dead in your trespasses and sins. And the Apostle Paul continues by becoming even more graphic, telling us what those sins were looked like in their former lives. And then notice how verse 4 begins. But God. That announces a turning point. You may want to underline or highlight those words. But God. 
dead in your trespasses and sin, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Wow. Now there's some good news. Drop down to beginning of verse 8. Same thing. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Wow. Can I hear a collective wow? Unbelievable. And then verse 11 begins with, therefore. And therefore is building a bridge from what he has just said to what he is going to say. And they're related somehow. One Bible teacher came, I came across earlier this week labeled the transition that's taking place from, in the first ten verses, from the problem of spiritual death and then to, beginning at verse 11, the problem of spiritual distance that's covered in verses 11 through 12. Notice the language of distance in these verses. Therefore, and then beginning at verse 12, remember that you were at that time separate, language of distance, from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. All language of distance, separation, separate, Excluded, strangers, no hope, the language of distance. Now notice verse 13. But now. Not but God, but now. You may want to underline or highlight that phrase. There's a turning point again. In Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near. The distance is being coming together, brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing his flesh, the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. Go down to verse 19. Then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Then verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the language of distance 
is replaced with a language of reconciliation. As believers are now being reconciled to God and to one another in this community of faith. In God's household. He talks about God's house. Or in a holy temple in the Lord brought together. The problem of our spiritual death is solved when God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. And the problem of our spiritual distance from God and from each other is solved, according to verses 13 and 14, by the blood of Christ, who made both groups, believing Jews and believing non-Jews, into one. Beloved, we cannot come to Jesus. We cannot come to Jesus without coming to his spiritual, invisible, universal church. You can't. When we are reconciled to God, we are reconciled to his people. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 informs us, For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of the one spirit. Remember Saul's encounter on the road to Damascus? He was heading to Damascus to persecute Jesus' followers. His trip was interrupted by light flashing from heaven. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who is he persecuting? Believers. Verse 5. And he, that's Saul, said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, the voice from heaven said, or wherever it was coming from, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Are you following this? So the followers of Jesus are part of Jesus. To persecute them was to persecute him. One more, the first part of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Who is the firstborn? Well, Jesus is the ultimate firstborn from the dead. And we are united with him when we begin trusting him alone for our salvation. The church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Notice the, the present tense, who are enrolled in heaven, not will be, but are presently enrolled in heaven. Beloved, God doesn't give us the option. doesn't consult us. When we come to Jesus, we become part of his body, which is the church. There are no membership classes to complete. The moment you, by faith, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
you become a member of the spiritual, invisible, universal church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And so in the same way that believers' baptism is a visual, public expression of a personal, spiritual reality that has taken part in a person's life, becoming a member of the local visible church is a visible, public display of a heavenly reality. We're enrolled in the church of God. The biblical concept of the spiritual, invisible, universal church helps to establish a biblical basis for local church membership. Biblical concept number two, the exclusiveness of the early church. The New Testament church began in the day of Pentecost following a message that Peter preached. in Acts. It's recorded in Acts chapter 2. And the results of that message are found in Verse 41, beginning at verse 41. If you want to turn there to Acts chapter 2. Those who believed what Peter said or what he preached were baptized and added to the church that day. About 3,000 in all. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miracles and signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together in the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day... The Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Luke is describing what took place in the delivery room at the birth of the New Testament church. It's an amazing picture. In Acts chapter 5, verse 14, down the road, through the book, and all the more believers in the Lord multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. Acts chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Beloved, someone's counting. Which would suggest that there are those who are members of a local church and those who are not. Those who are in and those who are out. And somebody's keeping track of who's who. Additionally, as we look at the New Testament and all the epistles, those letters of the New Testament, they were addressed to either local churches or leaders of local churches, like Timothy, Titus, Philemon. These letters assume that believers are members of the visible local church. There are no letters in the New Testament addressed to church hoppers or church dropouts or anti-churchers. Not found there. When individuals repent 
and believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, they were baptized and added to the church. A localized, visible expression of the invisible universal church. The exclusiveness of the early church is a biblical concept that helps establish a biblical basis for the local church. Concept number three. The implication of the biblical metaphors applied to the church. And you know that a metaphor is a figure of speech that uses something that's familiar to explain something that is unfamiliar. There are several metaphors applied to the church in the New Testament, and I'm just going to give you a, a sample very quickly. The church as a, as a family of God. We've already looked at Ephesians chapter 2. Notice verse 19 again. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens, fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. And the New, Internet, or the New Living Translation says you are part of God's family. The church as the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul does something very interesting. This, is a, this mystery is great. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. We may want to use caution when we are speaking about Christ's bride. I know I get pretty defensive when people speak about my bride in a negative way. The church as the temple of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 reads, Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. The church as the household of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. But by far the most common New Testament metaphor for the church is the human body. Turn with me to this extended metaphor in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 12. This is just one example where the church is referred to as the body of Christ. Beginning at verse 12. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. But we've all been baptized into one body by the one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one. The foot says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not a hand. That does not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less part of the body? 
answers, no. If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if the whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wanted it. And God has put each part just where he wants it. Verse 27, I'll leave the rest for you to read on your own. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is part of it. Certainly the spiritual, invisible, universal church is all of that. But this letter is actually addressed to a local, visible church family gathered in the city of Corinth. A family member, a bride, part of the temple of God, member of, the, of God's household, the body of Christ, all metaphors that are used to describe a believer's relationship to the church. These all picture relationships that are intimate and committed. Do they not? The biblical metaphors applied to the church helps to establish the biblical basis for local church membership. Biblical concept number four, local church oversight. Now the Bible doesn't say a lot about local church governance, and so what it does say is really significant. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul has called for the elders from the church at Ephesus to meet him in Miletus. Listen to verse 28 of Acts chapter 20. Be on guard. He's speaking to the elders from the church at Ephesus. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Guard, oversee, shepherd. And he defines the who. Those who are part of the church. Those who, those he purchased with his own blood. It's not everyone in the city of Ephesus. It's a well-defined group of people that they're to shepherd guard and oversee. The biblical qualifications for these elders or individuals who are going to lead local churches are actually spelled out in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. These men are given a holy aspiration. They want to do this kind of work. And trust me, it's not because it's attractive or well-paid. There's a holy aspiration. God puts a burden in their life. And they are to be tested with respect to the above reproach requirements. And so they have this burden and they are also tested to make sure they meet the qualification. The Apostle Paul's instruction to Titus was to appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And it's plural. Elders. And so each local assembly will be led by a plurality or overseen by a plurality 
of leaders. And again, the scope of the elders or overseers' responsibility was limited, suggesting some kind of local church membership. The Apostle Peter also recognizes this plurality of leadership in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. We're not going to take time to read all of those verses, but um, the responsibilities are consistent throughout. These men are to protect, lead, feed, and care for those. And 1 Peter chapter 3, or chapter 5, spells it out. Those allotted to your charge. Again, suggesting some kind of local church membership. They're not responsible for everyone, but those allotted to their charge. Here's one verse that I have to admit keeps overseers awake at night. It's found in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. That's tough. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. There it is. Who are we giving account to? The Lord. We stand before God to give an account for how well we shepherded you as his people. Let them do this with joy and not grief. For this would be unprofitable for you. The biblical concept of local church oversight helps us to establish a biblical basis for local church membership. Concept number five, church discipline. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17, Jesus lays out the four-step process for exercising church discipline. Listen as I read. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. So by the, by the mouths of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. In other words, treat him as an unbeliever. Share the gospel with him. So, step one. Show him or her his fault privately. If if he or she doesn't listen, step two, take a witness or two with you. If he or she still refuses to listen, step three, tell the church family, not the universal church, I'm assuming a local church. And if he or she refuses to listen to the church, step four, treat him as an outsider, as an unbeliever. It's a tough passage. Apostle Apostle Paul gives two young pastors the following instructions in his pastoral ministry manual that he sent to both of them. First to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. Those who continue to sin, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first and second warning after that. Have nothing more to do with them. 
for people like that have turned away from the truth and their own sins condemn them. The elders of the Rock Community Church have neither a desire nor a responsibility or authority to discipline believers who are not part of our church. That's true of any church. But who is part of the church? The biblical concept of church discipline helps to establish a biblical basis for local church membership. And so a biblical basis for local church membership, this is not an exhaustive list, but it is established by the following biblical concepts. Number one, the spiritual or invisible universal church. Number two, the exclusiveness of the early church. Number three, the implications of biblical metaphors applied to the church. Number four, the directives for local church oversight. Number five, for exercising church discipline. Allow me to begin to wrap things up by providing a sales pitch. Let me give you some benefits, just three quick benefits for becoming a member of the Rock Community Church. And they're applicable to other churches, but I'm more interested in what we're doing here. Number one, it announces publicly your identification with us. It's not like a Costco card where we pay some money and then we flash it at the front door and get in and get the benefits of membership. It's not like that. Identification is a way of saying, I'm with them. I'm all in. I'm going to watch their back and they're going to watch my back so that we can grow together spiritually. I can't think of a better way to encourage one another. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider one another, how to stimulate one another. Church membership does that when we identify. Number two, it acknowledges that interdependence that we talked about earlier. Together, we make one really good Christian. We use that at the elders' council table all the time. Together, we make one really good elder. Together, we make, this church family, makes one really good Christian. We need each other. Number three, it invites accountability. And that's where the whole church discipline and, and uh, those kinds of accountability relationships come into play. Chuck Spindall writes, when we deliberately engage ourselves with those who will keep us honest, we safeguard our lives, our families, and our churches from the backwash of unaccountable behavior. The pain of real accountability is nothing compared to the pain that results from a lack of integrity. Local church membership is visible, public display of an invisible spiritual reality. You are the body of Christ, individually and members of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, 27. Every, every local church develops their own unique process of, of membership. Let me just give you ours 
briefly. Number one, you need to communicate your desire. We can't read your minds. and we, You need to approach one of the elders and somehow communicate with us that you're interested, preferably in writing, because it's easy to forget otherwise. And that person will inform the other elders. Number two, complete the Raw Community Church membership classes. Typically, there, there are three of them, about 50 minutes long each. And they include uh, confessions of the person's faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. An acceptance of our statement of faith. We'll walk through that. And you'll agree with that if you do. And willingness to observe the ordinances of Christ governed by his, and, and to be governed by his word, the supremacy of scripture, uh, a desire to be actively involved in the ministry of the Rock Community Church. That all happens in those, those classes. Thirdly, complete and submit an application for membership. And so I should say that even if you're, you need to take the class just to become familiar with our church, that's the first step. And then after that, you can submit, fill out and submit the application for membership. The completion of the membership interview that takes place after we get that application form. Um, the interviewing elder will then report and make his recommendations to the elders' council. And then applicants who are approved, uh, the elders' council will be received into membership at a membership ceremony that takes place here at the front of the church in one of our worship services. You've received a handout this morning that came in the bulletin. Can you wave that for me so I can see who's got one? Does everybody have one? Do we need, can I get a, are there extras and there are extras there? Well, do you mind grabbing those? And those who don't have one, um, we want to make sure everyone gets one. And think prayerfully about this in the next week, about those three options you have, or if you've already um, Spirit of God's moved in your life already this week and you want to make a commitment to one of those to sit down with, with an elder and have a chat, we'd love you to do that. Anybody need one that doesn't have one? Hands high. <clears throat> and then I'm going to close in prayer. Thanks, Will. Appreciate that. Getting in shape this morning. Anybody else? Hands high? Everybody got one? Let's pray. Father, this is your church. You know each and every one of us gathered here this morning. You know our hearts. You know who belongs to you. Those who are trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. For those who are not, continue drawing them to yourself, we pray. And use us as a church, individually and collectively, to be part of that drawing process. May we be a biblical church, a church that pleases you and brings you much honor, faithfully celebrating, demonstrating, and proclaiming the gospel. And may you add to our number those who are being saved. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.